0: i
1: This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegasus. And I believe this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but I think episode 60, the big yes. six-zero, where <laughs> um, we're almost senior citizens here. But yep. uh, we, you know, so we've been in business for a while, and uh, we're very happy to have on this week, none other than one of the kings of Frog Twitter, the founder of Passage Prize, then Passage Press, author, writer, the man known only as Lomez. Welcome, Pat, Dan.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I will, I must, in all due humility, reject the label of being any kind of king. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I I have been on Twitter for a long time and in this part of Twitter for a long time, so I guess I'm certainly a veteran, um, yep. at the least. Yep. And uh, that's a what veteran of, yeah, a
1: veteran of the meme
2: war. Yeah, veteran of the meme war. I've been in the shit. That's for
1: sure. <laughs> but uh, definitely a king maker on Frog Twitter. Yeah, like you. Yeah. So passage press, passage prize. I mean, what I will get into it more obviously. But, like, what you've done for the scene in helping to organize Passage Prize, that, um, you know, well, number one, thank you. Because that, like, really galvanized so many of our our friends and what have you to start, you know, picking up the pen and writing. Yeah, And, you know, it's just it's so good to know that there's someone out there who will read and appreciate your writing.
2: Yeah, I mean... Um my own perception of the project I'm doing is a bit more modest. Uh, Just that in the sense, how I see it is that I saw all of this energy, Mm -hmm. this kind of scattered energy that already existed. So you, you know, you use the word maker, like, uh, but I didn't, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm producing any of this energy or even, maybe catalyzing it in some small way, but really it's just, I'm aggregating it into one page yeah. and, and into one place. So it's more just, there was all this scattered energy. There was all this scattered talent um sort of operating outside of the regime, cathedral, call it whatever you want, mainstream publishing, our guys, quote unquote, <laughs> who were doing writing, who were obviously interested in literature. Um, but it it because it lacked a certain amount of focus. It was often hard to find. It was hard to identify what was worth your time and what wasn't. And I found myself constantly um, as I would tweet about this stuff. You know, I was tweeting a lot about you know a need for some kind of uh, emergent sort of culture for our side and some place, some sandbox where that could be uh, that could happen. And uh, I would just, people would send me stuff. Oh, I've been working on this or I've been working on that. And I would just sort of retweet it and found myself just retweeting people's stuff all the time. And I thought, well, Mm -hmm. this is okay, but maybe we can make this a little more efficient. Yeah. And rather than me just randomly retweeting stuff that's sent to me, I can, uh, you know, put out the call and use a bit of money to bait people in to sending their best stuff. Mm-hmm. and maybe even get some new people who were previously on the sidelines um, to send in their their writing. And then I thought, well, if I'm doing writing, why not throw art in there and some poetry and let's do fiction and nonfiction alike. And so um, that was sort of the genesis of, of the Passage Prize. So again, just to uh, uh, recapitulate that point, it, it wasn't so much creating this scene in any way. I really don't think that I did that, uh, but it was just collecting a lot of this energy that was laying around and using other people with more clout than me, you know, people like Curtis Yarvin, zero HP Lovecraft, even BAP, you know, was very helpful and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, promoting this stuff who then, you know, and, and served as judges on that first contest who lended this project, some credibility and legitimacy so that people felt comfortable giving me their stuff. um, and then my duty was was merely just to put it all together in one place and and then get it out to folks. So that's really uh, how I see my role in this whole thing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it just really has like catalyzed. Um, you know, I I know you resist the label of kingmaker or what have you, but I think Passage Prize was kind of a spark, and now you have so many people writing so many like a, a good example i think is um the and the flash fiction anthology i i know you have been yeah. in discussion with woland about yeah. you know how that might proceed with passage that being said i'm i'm in the group chat and so like just for people who don't know this is a uh an anthology that uh an a woland is putting together for flash fiction and so there's like 30, 40 people in this group, everyone like sharing new stories they're writing every day. And it's like, the I guarantee you, these are people who, you know, prior to the last two years or so, probably were not writing stories every day. Yeah. And it's just great to see that kind of like creative energy unleashed yeah. in people who otherwise would be like, you know what? N- no one's going to care what I have to say. No one's going to, you know, because this NPR tote. Bad crowd, right. they're gonna, you know, say like this is weird, this is racist, this is whatever. But like, no, now like they're writing for someone. So, yeah, yeah, uh, good stuff.
2: Yeah, and it's really exciting to me too because uh, I love literature. I always love novels and short stories. And um, I think like a lot of people, I don't, where's the cutoff point? Who knows? That's a matter of historical debate. And maybe it was just this kind of slow burn. Um, but there, there's a point somewhere in the last 20 years where the institution of mainstream literature just kind of fell apart. Uh, you know, I think it was in the late 90s that Philip Roth, maybe it was John Updike, one of the two said, you know, the novel's dead. It's over. Yeah. The time of the novel's over. And, you know, maybe they knew something we didn't. Um, but it seems like somewhere in around 2010, the book industry, uh, decided that that whether it was Updike or Roth was right, and uh, it wasn't just that the novel was dead; it was time to finally put the nail in the coffin and bury it forever. And um, you know what you saw, what what we've seen since, at least so far as I can tell, and, and not that I've read every novel that's come out over that period of time, but it's uh, sort of very homogenistic in its in its style and tone, and very boring, frankly. And in any case, um, designed to appeal to a very narrow audience of geriatric or near geriatric or spiritually geriatric women, okay, fine, they can read, but they're not the only people who want to read or who can be inspired and edified by good literature. And so what that has left behind is a whole audience of readers and writers um, who have nowhere to turn. Because that industry has abandoned them, so that's kind of where I think uh, we come in. The hope is that we can reignite this world of writing and literature for uh, for a new generation of people who are who are looking for some kind of su- sustenance and reenchantment, you know, and and find that in writing.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, one thing, one thing we that's kind of a perennial topic in, in this kind of space, whether it's talking about Passage Publishing or, you know, just our podcast, New Right, which obviously has a similar mission. You know, I think in our debut episode, we talk about something similar to what you just described in terms of, you know, seeing kind of a more scattered literary energy and wanting to be a part of kind of bringing it together. Um, one of the perennial topics that always comes up in that conversation, like, is it right-wing Mm. literature or if it's mm-hmm. not ex- and obviously like i'm not going to be coy like i think the three of us are <laughs> right of center to say at least in a lot of people in this scene are and and that ties into passage i think a little bit in the mission and correct me if i'm wrong but maybe more fundamentally it's about just creating a new space for people who are alienated from the as you said very paltry mainstream mm-hmm. publishing and, and frankly mainstream reading community um yeah. And, 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 you know, it's kind of a place, you know, it's not just politics. It's kind of open to anyone who is disaffected, which is kind of a big tent, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah. So this is uh, a huge question is where does ideology fit into this uh, project? And um, so I don't want to skip ahead too far, but we were at Mm -hmm. an event in Los Angeles a month ago. Um, At least Matt and I were um, and New Right uh sponsored the event or or planned it or whatever and mm-hmm. passage was involved as well and we had uh, a variety of readers out um delicious tacos peachy keenan whose new book domestic extremist has just dropped and i encourage everyone right. to go absolutely. And buy that
1: um, yeah
2: absolutely. our yeah. good friend peachy uh and uh, curtis yarvin as well then matt you read um yep. disgrace Isaac. propagandist yeah. Isaac Simpson read um I said a few things. And so you see on this stage, a pretty disparate group of people, um, you know, delicious tacos is by no means a quote unquote right winger. There's <laughs> no sense in which you can have a coherent right wing politics that would apply to delicious tacos. Okay, that that those are two totally uh, opposite things. Um, then you have like Curtis Yaravan up there who on stage, you know, declares himself a "quote unquote" Reddit atheist, and then you have Peachy Keenan, who is, you know, a more sort of like normie con facing, you know, pundit style writer whose mm-hmm. um, writing is way more explicitly political, and and so, Matt, I believe it was you posed this question. Yeah uh, what binds us all here. Right. Okay. And then you look around the audience and it's like young, old, you know, hipsters and, you know, like LA scene types. And then you have buttoned up, like, you know, more trads or whatever. Um, so the question, yeah. So there's this question, what binds everyone at this event? And, um, this is something I've been thinking a lot about because the answer to this question, I think, also answers the question of how passage might be oriented politically or at least ideologically. And, and my answer is it's not ideological. It's something pre-ideological and what, what we're define how we define ourselves is largely what we're defining ourselves against. So it's a kind of definition via negativa. And in, in I think it was Curtis who brought up um, the metaphor of a stench, And what Curtis said was, there's this thing out there that we might call the cathedral, that we might call the regime, and it produces a set of cultural products, and it produces a set of ideas, and it produces a set of moral values and virtues that are all kind of degraded and perverse in some way, and they have this stench, okay? And this is a metaphor that, that I think is very powerful, one, because you know the olfactory system is like our it's our oldest sense um mm-hmm. it's it's our most primal sense and it's especially concerned with telling us what's good for us and what we need to avoid and so when when we're describing this thing over there as having this stench um it's something we're moving against we're moving yeah. away from and so I think the first prerequisite for anybody participating in our space is that they recognize that stench and that they have no intention at all of bringing any of that dead necrotic flesh of the regime into our space to reproduce and uh, populate our Mm -hmm. space with that same stench. So that's prerequisite number one. And the second one is merely that it's a kind of self-selecting audience. So anybody who's already sort of culturally or socially situated in such a way that they even know we exist and know how to find us and know like how to get information about how to show up at these events is a particular kind of person. And I think for now, um, you know, questions about like feds and infiltrators aside, who we allow in this space and what kind of art and literature we're looking for need only meet those requirements. Mm-hmm. A, you recognize that stench of the regime and you want nothing uh, to be not a part of it at all. Yeah. And two, that you're self-selected in that you're choosing us rather than returning to some other place where you might, um try to you know be an artist or a writer or whatever
3: yeah yeah no i think that makes a lot of sense it's almost reflected a little bit in in um the the names of the you know first and second passage prize you know mm-hmm. exiting the lo- exit the longhouse and then Second one is what re rebarbarization or re rewilding. Wild, re-wilding. rewilding. Yeah. And yeah. I, I like that because uh both in both instances, you know, yeah, yeah kind of the definition via negativa, you know, exit yeah. the longhouse. Yeah. And then um rewilding. It's this kind of it's rather than being obviously there's some relationship with ideology there at some point it comes in, but it's kind <laughs> of a more primal and primordial emotion of you know, exit. And kind of re-embracing a natural state and a natural power. And something I like a lot about frog Twitter types and people like BAP, as opposed to a more normy conservative type message, is it does tap into that deeper level where it's, it's, I I don't know if you call it meta-politics, it's almost something different, but it's like that more primordial need of man (laughs) below just having X, Y, and Z beliefs. And I think... What passage does and what those two prize names and the mission in general is kind of bring literature into that equation as a, as a way of escaping the longhouse, as a way of rewilding, you know. Literature. Yeah,
2: I, th- I think that's right. I think, um, maybe the core difference between what our guys are doing versus what you know, a pundit at uh, even like magazines I like, okay, but mm-hmm. that are more sort of uh, quote unquote, like Normie Con, let's say, um. And they can be, you know, based and sort of edgy in their own way. But they're approaching politics as um, at the level of actual policy and elections and uh, trying to sort of arrange pieces on the board in such a way that you're sort of maximizing your leverage over the other team who's arranging their pieces on the board. And there's this sort of fluid game that's being played and you're sort of nudging back and forth. Whereas our guys are kind of in some sense saying, okay, let's just throw away the whole board. That game, or, or maybe not always throw away the whole board, but that game is being played over there. We're talking about something different over here. We're talking about uh, the, before you can arrange those pieces on the board, what constitutes the pieces? Like who are, the, who are the people? Who's the personnel? Um, what are the what are sort of the motivating virtues of what we're trying to accomplish with this game? Yeah, uh, and so it is in some sense more primal, and and I think you know, frankly, one thing that's happened to us via modernity and again where you want to like say this is when it started i don't know that's that's for someone else to answer maybe but um it's sufficient just to look around and observe we've been kind of over domesticated a little bit uh and (laughs) there's you know the longhouse i'm not again not to be coy there's a kind of feminization that has taken hold of our social and political life and of course our cultural life as well and so a Rec- let's recognize that. Let's sort of uh, identify it for what it is. And then B, what rewilding then means is let's sort of strip away all of those layers of um, sort of over-socialization and domestication that, that have been kind of learned and inculcated in us through this feminized society that we live in. And really try to rediscover what it means to be human fully human like uh and and then I think especially fully uh like a man as well yeah and I, you know people sometimes criticize this as saying oh you know or they look at like andrew tate or something as a counterpoint to that that's really not what i'm saying at all i think you know andrew tate and who he is Is a consequence of feminization and a kind of overcompensated performative masculinity that's equally fake and gay. Yeah, in a shallow sense, basically. Yeah. And so that's not it either. Um, I and and frankly, I don't know quite know what what it looks like to be sufficiently rewilded or or appropriately rewilded, um, but it's definitely in that direction that I think we ought to be nudging ourselves and the stories we tell about ourselves.
1: Would you say that we are experiencing a moment of, I think, true good fortune, which, you know, is really, um, you know, not what people often say in our sphere, but (laughs) I think the fact that the mainstream artistic industry is so necrotic, Mm -hmm. so dead, Mm -hmm. they've left, the table to us mm-hmm. basically because if, if you want to if you're a true artist you want to write things that are uh you know uncensored uh, unencumbered yeah. you you want to be in an atmosphere where you, where you can create where you can be free yeah. and you know it's the the fact that there's so much censorship and and all the stuff we know that exists in the mainstream i think you know, it's, it's yeah. you know, excellent that we're doing this right now, but also like it would be insane if we did not, because yeah. suddenly we have this like, you know, we're the ones, the, the only ones who can provide an atmosphere and a, a scene as it were, whatever you want to call yeah. it, where yeah. you can actually create. And so as we <laughs> were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, yeah, this leads to people who are in the scene who are, you know, maybe not down with the politics necessarily, yeah. but um, I don't know where where do you stand on that? That uh, I think that can be okay in certain respects in yeah. terms of building momentum.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of two minds about this. Um, so I agree. I, in my uh, more hopeful moments, I'm white pilled and precisely the way that that you are, that you described, which is we've been left with this incredible opportunity. Um, this, this area of cultural terrain has been vacated by the enemy and we've just kind of stumbled onto this incredible outpost, you know, this high ground where there's, where there's nobody here and we can set up a fort here, you know, that can last a long time. And, uh, moreover for any like artist, you know, we're, we're in the mode of sort of radically generative art is like what we need, you know, something new, something that really like breaks us out of this kind of malaise that we're in. And that's exciting. Okay. I mean, everything is open to us. We're all kind of in uncharted water here, like aesthetically, artistically, there hasn't really yet been a full um, sort of accounting artistically yet for this transitionary phase that we're in and moving Mm -hmm. into this digital space and, you know, the tensions between on and offline life. I mean, there's so much material here that for any artist, again, this is, this is kind of ideal. Um, On the other hand, you would like to be in a position where there's a, a broader kind of social atmosphere and social conditions that are prepared to onboard this art and, you know, uh, display it or use it in the way that art ought to be used, which is uh, to present kind of narratives for a society um, to help guide them through mm-hmm. uh, various times and conflicts and tensions and. Yeah, you know the the missing piece here is that our society is so scattered and fractured and mm-hmm. identityless and sort of deracinated and atomized and all these things that people have complained about for for decades now. That in my bleaker moments now, I wonder just how. So beyond the this sort of niche community that we're speaking to and for. Um, what is the value of this creation? Like, what right. what function will it serve? Can it rescue us? You know, more broadly speaking, from this, I think, what is a, a sort of dangerous and bleak trajectory that we're on? And I think about you know the stories that my kids are going to hear, for yeah. example, and that will yeah. guide them, and the kind of reference points that they're going to share with their friends, and what kind of virtues and that 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 is gonna steer them towards, is there some way for what we're doing to intercede on that a little bit anyway? Um, I don't know, because of this fractured world we're in, yeah, maybe not. And that's my that's my fear is that yeah, we got this fort and it's up on a hill, but it's but it's an island and in some ways the war is over and everybody's just kind of scattered.
1: Yeah, Um, I see what you mean. I think like in some respects the the left obviously won the culture war, yeah. you know, in the twentieth century. That's what happened. But like, you, this is an interesting question that I think you're raising right now: Can the right win a culture war in a culture that kind of is no longer cohesive? Yeah, like the terrain has changed. The left yeah. won the culture war when there was when it was possible to win a culture war. Yeah, can you win a culture war today? I think that's that's the question, yeah. right?
3: Is there yeah. ever going to be anything like an American monoculture? Yeah. I mean, not that we need a monoculture per se, but is yeah. there ever going to be? Is you know, you, Curtis kind of talks about this with the acorns for the cultural yeah. idea of really growing yeah. a new institution. And the question is, to what extent can there be a new institution beyond you get another niche or subculture? And I, I do think that's an open question i mean i think there there's this there's no, it's no doubt that it's a small victory even what we have now that there i do think this is almost a tired and silly thing to say but like i do think there's a real sense in which we're the cool people in the room mm-hmm. but like is can it go beyond that and there's a myriad of reasons as you highlighted why it's unclear <laughs> if yeah. We yeah i mean I, i'm
2: personally given up on the idea of a uh coherent American monoculture of the type we saw through the latter part of the 20th century that I think with, with just, you know, single reference points where, I mean, even as recently, I I mean, I remember my college days, like, uh, you know, everybody would be like quoting Anchorman or some whatever. Exactly. Okay. And it was like dumb and whatever, maybe cringe and, there's all sorts of things that, that may not be good about that, but it was no matter where you were in the country, if you were like in a frat house in like 2008 or something, yeah. you'd be hearing the same, like 10 jokes. Okay. Or whatever. Yeah, um, I, and, and it's all coming from like Hollywood. Okay. It's all like uh whatever movie or, and I just, I, I don't know that there's anything like that anymore. I mean, maybe, you know, people I I hear BAP's joke about wine bar, you know, banter, yeah, and wine yeah, bar, yeah. you are gay. Like that seems to have kind of permeated. But again, it's it's so narrow to this world we're in. Exactly. And, uh, and maybe that's okay. Okay. Maybe maybe what the future is for us is a kind of distributed, you know, almost uh sort of tribal mini states, you know, yeah. mini, mini uh cultures and I can imagine a a near term future where people start migrating and uh, kind of voting with their feet and affinity groups, you know, the kind of communities that we're building online start to find sort of regional pockets that they occupy. And there's a way in which you just build sort of culture out sort of locally. And then, you know, there's the guys in Wyoming doing their thing the guys in LA doing their thing that's sort of similar. And then the guys in Austin, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and they all, they kind of, you know, they're in this sort of tribal confederation of a kind where yeah. they all kind of meet at similar events, but that and the culture they share and the stories they share is totally distinct with virtually no overlap of their shit live analogs who live like a hundred miles down the road in the next city over. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah. And it's um, a little bit like that already, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Maybe
2: that's just where we're headed. And and then our politics, like our electoral politics, will follow that and sort of reconfigure itself based on the new reality like that. The the counter argument there, uh, though, is like one maybe that Curtis or Nick Land would say is like, no way the, the sort of the cathedral, the regime will never allow that. They're never going to allow these breakaway sort of federations from ever being able to form. They are going to impose that culture on top of you. They are going to construct various laws to make it impossible for any kind of meaningful breakaway sort of regional coherence. And that's not going to happen. Okay, they can't let that happen because that, of course, dilutes their power and dilutes their ability uh, to sort of achieve whatever agenda they're trying to achieve and enact, you know, their Whig historical sort of progressive march to utopia.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a real tension there, obviously. And I think the question then becomes, to what extent can our guys influence the uh, the people who are, like, in the room in mm-hmm. politics today? Yeah. and. I was, without you know saying anything doxable, I was having dinner with someone who's at the kind of like highest echelons of the conservative legal world. Mm-hmm. And he confided to me, like, we're all like you. We all think yeah. that the same things. Right. We just don't say them. And so that's just a bit of a white pill. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know how that, you know translates into real world action. But I do know if you have people like that at the federal uh, level and at the, you know, Mm -hmm. higher levels of the judiciary, like they will protect you, hopefully, and protect the like emergent communities that, I mean, certainly like in the conservative legal strain of thought, you know, it's very much a a state's rights uh, moment. Yeah. Uh, today. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, one would hope that you know the court would support, um, you know, more unilateral type um, e- executive, almost presidential actions that undertaken by governors, undertaken yeah. by you know people, and because the states originally were supposed to be sovereign in you know real respects, that's why they were called states. <clears throat> yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm not a legal theorist and, uh, you know, I don't, it's, it's sometimes hard for me to think at that level of abstraction. I just, I, what I observe is that, uh, it it seems to me very difficult for our guys, our side to use the levers of, um, you know, judicial activism, let's say, in order to get the things we want. Now, a huge caveat there is like, look at Roe v. Wade being overturned. Okay. Like, sure. There's, there's some success there. That's a, that's a clear data point in favor yeah. of people who say, let's just stay, we got to stay on yeah. the path we're on and just work a little bit harder, um, you know, with activism and putting our resources in the right place. And I guess, you know, okay. I'm willing to take on board some of that argument or like, you know, Chris Rufo model, of just getting in there and basically acting like a leftist but on behalf of the right yeah Um, yeah i i sometimes wonder though if chris rufo is just uh like a special guy who is the exception who proves the rule and then yeah trying to duplicate like you know may a thousand chris rufo's bloom is a delusion you know and i kind of think
3: so yeah
1: but, the way um, I see it is, yeah. is like these. So, like the Chris Rufo's of the world, they can't win the culture war. That's not yeah. what, that's not what they're designed to do. But can they kind of create enough cover for yeah. people to win the culture war? To like, can they create enough kind of protection for a you know yeah. a governor to kind of say f you to the federal government and you know yeah. allow like that? I see is like the union between political action and our thing more like culture war stuff is like, they help us do our thing.
2: Uh, Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm maybe because I have trouble thinking at those levels of abstraction. I'm just purely a pragmatist when it comes to this stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah. Chris Rufo is where he's succeeding. You know, let's just take those victories. Yeah. Um, you know amplify them as much as we can uh use them to our advantage you know take something like what he's doing with the new college let's get yeah. our guys in there let's see if we can like use that as a small little outpost to uh make some hay and you know maybe we'll try again in three or four other spots and even as cringe as something like uh, the university of Austin might look from the outside, (laughs) maybe that's also like a step in the right direction. Maybe the right personnel there could hire our guys to do things. And you just take these victories where you can get them
3: and um,
2: not try, you know, Curtis, I mean, the thing is though, someone like Curtis, who I obviously greatly respect or Nick land would say, actually, no, that's a mistake. Every time you make a little incremental gain, Even if there's some short-term benefit to that, the regime uh, is going to, at some point, figure out how to reverse that gain. And by um, showing them this particular trick in your bag, they're going to now be inoculated to it for the future. And it's only going to make them stronger and ultimately sort of improve their ability to dominate us. And the only real solution is either the Nick land version, which is to just feed it enough stuff until it burns itself out. We just have to let it eat itself until it's burnt out and is is fully exhausted. Hence, you know, accelerationism, Mm -hmm. or Curtis's thing, which is you've got to be very patient and wait for just the right time. And just the right person and personnel, a kind of counter elite. And, you know, pull off a coup d'etat, like overthrow this regime, wipe it out completely and put in your people. And that's it. Those are the only yeah. two ways, hmm. you No, know, pressing the big red button or letting it burn itself out. Anything else you do to try to like tinker or make incremental improvements is only either going to prolong the, how long this thing lasts for or is going to in fact make it stronger. So, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm at no, an I answer. mean,
1: that, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. I, I, I think like you do need some political action to form that cadre that Yarvin yeah. is talking about, yeah. because like, if you yeah. don't have some cover, like, you know, how, how are we even going to meet and get together and, you know, figure, not right. like figure stuff out on a revolutionary level, <laughs> figure stuff out on a more intellectual, like forming yeah. a culture. Level.
2: Yeah. And actually I think what we're doing in large part with this culture thing we're building is creating a shelling point for these people okay it's 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 where all these disparate potential you know counter forces let's call them um can meet it's it's the common ground and what's useful about it is that it's a it's a it's a shelling point it's a common ground um a meeting point that by its nature the People who belong to the regime will not want to join. Yeah. So so it's got this nice feature of being uh, uh, allergic to our, you know, enemies in the Schmidtian sense.
3: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I I feel like that's, uh, I think that's sort of what Curtis implies with the acorns for the culture Uh war idea. And in terms of creating more explicitly cultural spaces like passage, like the event we put on yeah um sort of yeah it's, it's a meeting point for these ideas and these people uh, and it's not that it's like a trojan horse like th- there is a potentially ideological level it is subversive and openly <clears throat> and openly so but the rallying point is uh you know kind of coming together around ideas that are exciting and culture and um and i guess Another part of that is that it can kind of influence the coming generations who, mm-hmm. you know, are exposed to this first as something that's vital in a way. It doesn't have that stench, as you mentioned. And yeah. then, yeah, I kind of, we talked about that issue earlier like, can it go mainstream or is it always going to be a fort on a hill kind of thing? Uh, regardless, I feel like it can propagate itself in some capacity. Um, and especially also with this kind of a pronatal message, you know, as new. Yeah families emerge um i guess that would be the hope that this thing kind of propagates itself and it propagates itself not through chris rufo style short-term political uh yeah. goals but rather um through i mean you know it's, yeah. a, it's a bit of a nebulous sort of as, as i'm using it here but but through culture through yeah i mean um, yeah
2: yeah like that it has this uh mimetic quality exactly um, mimetic yeah but so you know it's funny you say the thing about uh like being pronatalist. Um, I I mean, I think that's true, okay. I think, yeah, you know, ultimately, the, the grand scheme of things, it will maybe the, the narratives will sort of promote a pronatalist message, but not because the writers are necessarily explicitly writing pronatalist stories. What I think instead, the, except for Peachy, I guess, but <laughs> yeah, well, she's a piece of, it, okay? of the so puzzle, that's one yeah. node in this thing. But what you'd hope is that this collection of people and the various perspectives that they bring to bear on this project, the the foundational uh, sort of virtue of the art, the, the sort of the North Star of any cultural product that comes out of this, in my mind, is that it's truth telling. Okay. So it, so it looks yeah. at the world as it is, not how we prefer it ought to be mm-hmm. and it and it's a, a reflection of that world as it is and i don't mean to say that this is strictly like a scientific materialist kind of view of what what truth is truth is more expansive than that you know it there's a kind of truth in beauty and aesthetics and there's a kind of more you know it's not uh i'm not a relativist okay so there's mm-hmm. there are things that are true beyond just what is scientifically true. And what I'd hope all of our writers artists do is that they are in their own way, telling the truth about the world, reflecting something true about the world and our spirit, spiritual experience in the world. Um, And through that, through that kind of uh, stark and unapologetic truth telling, which is totally at odds with the cathedral. Okay. Totally at odds with the regime who wants to dress up the world in all sorts of sort of costumes and delusions, uh, it will promote precisely the kinds of things that I think are conducive to right-wing politics. That's why I'm a yes. right-winger because I think it it reflects truth. Okay? Yeah, if I yeah, didn't yeah. think that, I wouldn't be a right-winger. But it. But I'm not starting from the premise that I'm a right-winger. I'm starting from the premise that I want the art to reflect something true about the world. And I think that's how our artists ought to... And writers ought to be thinking about their own work.
3: No, absolutely. And it's an interesting, very, very interesting way of looking at it. And I think, I don't know what the appropriate historical metaphor is, but there are these moments in history where there's this kind of, uh, this is a little bit reductive, but there's like a back to nature kind of mentality. Uh I think you got a very bastardized version of that. Maybe initially wasn't actually that bastardized, but it quickly became, I don't know, subsumed by the by the cathedral Um, Uh with the sixties and hippies and everything. I'm not that pro that, but I, you know, there's that element um, obviously. And uh, (laughs) obviously another, another historical analogy is like the Volkish movement in Germany, not endorsing everywhere. that, (laughs) But nevertheless, um, or even look at earlier
2: in in America, you know, uh, uh, the sort of naturalists like Jack London or or Frank Norris, you know, these a couple of these guys became commies or whatever, fine, but uh, that's kind of neither here it, nor there. I, yeah, I, have, I
3: mean, not, not I, not I can int- cope yeah. about that all day, you know. I, and, but, <laughs> I, I have interesting thoughts on that because yeah, I think, um, listen, I, I really don't, as may not shock listeners, I don't like communists, but I think that you know, someone like Jack London was. Was a commie because yeah. he was so against industrial capitalism. Right. He saw that as I think he was wrong, but he saw that as the means to get back in touch with something true and more natural. Yeah. So I think it's part and parcel of that. I, I you know, a lot of it was a reaction against industrialism. Um, anyhow, speaking not even going all these historical tangents, but it's a yeah, it's a big part of where we are now. I think. Speaking yeah.
1: of which, I know this is a pre-recorded podcast. We are not live. But I want to let everyone know that uh, Uncle Ted just passed away. Oh, wow, no really? way! Yeah, he like, just died uh, right just now. Press, now. F, yeah.
2: press F and chat. Oh man,
0: <laughs>
1: that's yeah. uh, that's oh, wow. wild. Okay, 81. I
2: mean, I I saw rumors about this like a few months ago. There were some four chan rumors that he had passed away, but are, is this official now?
1: Yeah. 81 he just uh just passed i don't know what of i assume just being old yeah Yeah.
3: interesting goodness that's very weirdly uh apropos to what we were just speaking about on point (laughs) (laughs) yeah where i don't even yeah yeah go on sorry
2: well no so i mean uh one thing about i want to just add to this to this argument about truth telling because it's you know it's um it's a bit vague okay that's fine but it's again as i say it's a north star okay it's a, it's a direction to point ourselves toward and uh one thing that's important about this is that as we exit the longhouse or uh reapproach the quote unquote wilderness we're we're sort of operating in the dark and what's out ahead is unknown okay and uh what truth there is to be told about what is out ahead is also unknown, unknown to us and moreover we don't even necessarily know the right strategies of of cutting the paths to get to those places and so truth telling or this the you, truth as a north star also includes taking on board like lots of different perspectives And like this, you know, even incorporating into your belief, someone like Uncle Ted, let's say, even if Mm -hmm. you find him like repulsive for other means or uh, for other reasons, like anyone on our side ought to be able to take on a lot of different perspectives and think through a lot of different points of view um, on the premise that we don't know what's out ahead. We don't quite know how to get there. And it's going to require a lot of experimentation to do so. And so we don't want to be closed off to not just like uncle Ted style stuff, but you know, there's a kind of conspiratorial strain that runs through sort of right-wing thought. There is, um, you know, a kind of metaphysical, uh, you know, sort of fantastical, um, you know, mythological strain that runs through right-wing thought. And what we don't want to get so caught up and sort of completely buying into some of these esoteric ideas in a way that become that, that sort of steers us away from truth. We do want to be able to play in that sandbox with all of these different tools so that we can emerge with, uh, you know, different points of view and different strategies for for how to find truth. So, so I guess what I'm saying here is like, it is you know, yes, it, being right-wing, I guess, is is part of this, but it's also uh, not being closed off to all sorts of different perspectives.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, and open it doesn't mean- to think mean... through
2: and experiment intellectually and aesthetically with all different, you know, and this is, sorry, yeah. I'm kind of rambling here, but no, you know, no, as I go, go on, on, I'm that. like starting to formulate my own beliefs on this stuff. But, uh, you know, one thing I, I want to avoid I mentioned this in the longhouse thing I wrote for First Things. First Things, yeah. And some people were a little bit, I don't know, critical of it, and that's fine. But um, I said, you know, something along the lines of just returning to sort of traditional classical art and sort of trying to recreate classical forms is not enough. Yeah. And uh, I, I probably should have elaborated on that. But what I mean is, um, while those things are important and edifying and have value, and we don't want to just, you know, we're not Dada's. We don't want to just throw all of that away mm. and uh, completely abandon the traditions that we come from and that in their own times, we're capable of producing truly great art. We also have to be willing to move out ahead and, Absolutely. you know, be kind of, I you know, modernist to some extent. I, yeah, and I don't mean yeah. capital M modernist. I just mean in our own way, like we're going to have to break through some terrain and some, you know, dense foliage with our own sort of new tools. And what that looks like is sort of anyone's guess. Um, So I think it it needs to be more than just uh, recreating,
3: mimicking and imitating classical forms.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, well, I
3: think it already is, uh, you know, more than that in a lot of ways, even just like a a meme, you know, some of the memes guys make, like, you know, they they count. I don't want to be in this kind of annoying lib way like you know i don't i don't need to elevate all lower forms of art the higher forms of art, obviously yeah. uh memes aren't the same as the sistine chapel but they're there's something and, and they kind of advance the you know they, they're a way of kind of sometimes you know explicitly repackaging older aesthetics into new aesthetics a lot of the art that i saw submitted to passage mm-hmm. was like that um i, I think mm-hmm. it's already happening is really all i'm trying to say, I mean, even even some like zero literary, like zero HP Lovecraft yeah. is a great example of an absolutely cutting edge type of literature, visual art. You know, basically the judges of the the Passage Prize we're, we're yeah. now rattling off. But Geo, you know, influenced yeah. by Italian Futurism and 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 is kind of an he embraces post modernism and modernism in yep. in his own way that's not anti traditional. Um, yeah. I think it's happening. Yeah, yeah, I think and it even, is too. Oh, yeah, go, sorry, ahead, go ahead. Man even no, no. tacos
1: who um you know there may be some something in the future we can cut that yeah. out if that's not yeah, yeah, appropriate yeah. yeah but um even tacos like his style of writing that's new that's like not really like like yes there's a kind of a well you know influence and callback but to, you know kind of like write about one's own experiences in this kind of essayistic but also like very um you know uh, honest to the male experience yeah. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know a, a style while also being literary like he's he too is carving out new ground so yeah. like there's you know there's many i think examples on our side of people who are not just returning to the the Jack London the A.D. Hemingway what ha- and you could even argue like how how uh, conservative were Jack London in any way, yeah. given what yeah, yeah. we discussed? Right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, there's there's people like you know, obviously Zero HP Tacos in his own way. Yeah. Uh, others who are writing fiction that defies categorization. Yeah. And that's like you know, and oh, point me to like a, an author in the mainstream who's doing that. No, they're, they're not. They're, they're all in their cookie cutter. This is my lived experience novel about being a Vietnamese immigrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gay or something yeah, yeah. like that. <laughs> that's and, right. Uh, yeah, that's so right. I mean, yeah. it's not to say like you couldn't like, you know, it's necessarily, I mean, I might not politically agree with it, but you, yeah. it's not to say you couldn't have a novel that's good that's about right. that. But like the thing is like, these are the only novels that they want to publish so it just becomes like how many of these novels are just like the novelists don't even care or believe this stuff they're just like oh i gotta find a guy who's a gay immigrant and write about him
2: yeah i mean i i can tell you a story um well i'll try i'll change slightly some of the details maybe but uh yeah i know of a novel so you know maybe they'll let you get away with like two of those things but you're not going to get away with like all five okay where you're like a straight straight white guy writing like you know just sort of naked uh realism about the world as it is in front of you without yeah. you know the smells and grandma's you know kitchen and the cinnamon sticks or whatever bullshit but uh so yeah. this guy had a novel and uh there's this kind of side story about some refugees and uh anyway the the manuscript's completed and you know he's a good writer but you know he's checking too many of these uh like um boxes that make him a little bit um you know antithetical to what the regime wants us to hear and so they made him rewrite the ending of the novel to make it anti-trump so that the refugees and now i can't remember whether it's either that they um like suffer some kind of like tragic fate because of the callousness of like you know Republicans and whatever like town this is or if it's like this triumphant escape that they manage to uh you know uh yeah. using their you know immigrant wiles yeah. and uh, you know their yeah. you, you know they're, uh, they're slum the, native, smarts. Yeah, the native mob <laughs> who's coming with their pitchforks to like kill them because they're refugees or whatever. But in any case, the, the the publisher made him rewrite the final chapter um, to incorporate some kind of like strictly political element that was relevant to when he was writing this at you know during Trump's presidency. And you know, that is just I okay, yeah, I guess you're a writer, you gotta pay the bills, maybe he's got a family to feed and you just do what you gotta do. But that's so antithetical to any sort of artistic spirit, like this idea that you're gonna allow this work yeah. um, to be mangled in that way um, on account of some petty kind of political message for, you know, people who aren't, you know, who's the audience who's going to be like sort of smitten by that or, or seduced by this or feel like comforted by the the way that you've ended this story. It's just, do you, do you even want them as your audience? I mean, it, yeah. is so it even worth your mom writing a novel? Yeah. Right. If that's, if that's who this is for, just people like devouring this slop so that they can feel good and go to their book club meetings and talk shit about Trump or whatever. I mean it's um yeah it's yeah. pretty bleak.
1: I mean crucially I think none of us would advise a writer to do that. No. Like <laughs> even if like the end is like something and I'm just like I hate this politically this is whatever but if it's like what the artist honestly like wants to write I yeah. you know, say like, yeah, you know, that's, that's your story and I might not like it, but, um, yeah. you know I mean, the, the
2: only question I'd ask in that case, again, it's getting back to this question of truth. Like, does this pass the test of verisimilitude? Exactly. When I read this, mm-hmm. am I reading some obvious fantasy or yeah, construction yeah. that's meant to sort of placate the uh you know moral misgivings of yeah, the yeah. audience or the writer himself. And if that's exactly. the case, then no, it doesn't pass the sniff test. It doesn't pass the truth test. So I'm yeah. not publishing it. If it does, and it happened, but again, you know, th- th- this is where uh it's, it's tricky. Sort of convenient. But I I would say like if it's true, then it's politically, it's it's by it's definitionally then going to be aligned with my politics because my politics are uh, at least an attempt to map what's true onto my political preferences. Okay. So yeah, that's maybe no. the trick that I'm telling myself to get around these questions, but there it is.
3: No, no, com- completely. I agree. I mean, um, I think this is a bit of an aside, but I mean, I think that's why some people like Camille Polia are so popular on frog uh-huh. Twitter is because they pass the sniff test despite yeah. not being, um, necessarily aligned politically i completely right. you know resonate with with what you're saying the goal is to understand you know to actually understand what these human dynamics are i think i might be frozen up Can you guys hear me no, i can okay. hear you fine yeah. okay good yeah the, the video froze but the, the audio is still going um and yeah just, i guess the other comment on on what you're talking about is yeah i sometimes worry that i'm like being on like I, i'm exaggerating like you know how bad the so-called cathedral is but whenever yeah. i hear stories like that from the publishing world i realize yeah. that if anything you know it, yeah. it's as bad it's worse than what you think uh the kind it of is. censorship
2: it's worse i mean yeah. uh i've been in it for the last 10 years um in in uh, yeah various ways uh and i can tell you that whatever you think of the beliefs and uh sort of cultural agenda of the people who are sort of writing the script for the left, you know, that's how Mm -hmm. you might think of the cathedral. They're like, they're the ones putting the play on They're the script writers. It's worse than you can imagine. Like they're, they're already, what you see in front of you, like what comes across your screen on Twitter is the stuff that they wrote a month ago. The stuff that they're writing now is worse than that. Okay. They're still moving in that direction. And it's, it's another, you know, two, uh, Two notches um further off than where you are now is what they're working on.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think there's obviously as you talk about there's some signs for hope sort of in the culture where there's this reaction, but then I think there's other things that, as you said, it just gets worse and worse every month. And I think what's happening at the highest level gets worse and worse.
2: (laughs) So the reaction though, I well, I don't know. I mean, it's it'd be interesting to figure out a way to tell, but what the reaction is, though, is just this deeper fracturing. It's not actually like taking those people where they are in the positions they are and like changing their mind. And they're saying, well, you know, they, you know, it looks like uh, people were really upset about this Bud Light thing. Oh, so yeah. now at my marketing job, I'm going to be less crazy about trans stuff. It's not really that. I mean, there's a kind of, I mean, you right after that thing, there was that beer ad uh was it I don't know what beer it was was it oh like, uh,
1: yeah it was, I mean it was some like kind of like attempt to grift on yeah the it was like the woman American beer. beer is
2: actually about women yeah. and they used to make us dress up in bikinis but we're now we're girl bosses you know and we've always been girl bosses and uh it was I think it was also an Anheuser-Busch beer so it's like the same company yeah like,
3: Ugh, doubling down yeah
2: On this thing. And it's, and it's the same people making these decisions who made the previous decision and their minds aren't being changed. What's, what's changing is there's, again, there's just this deeper fracturing and our side is just sort of coalescing, which is good. I don't mean to say it's, it's not good. It is good. But the people who are responsible, again, for sort of writing the script for the left, you know, the people in the cathedral are not moderating their views on account of this reaction.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, just, it's one of the, to shout out a friend, I mean, it's one of the things that makes Isaac's, uh, you know, Disgrace Propagandist yeah, uh, right. know, podcast and, and blog so interesting is that he's familiar with this world. I mean, I think it's crucially important to understand PR and to understand, uh, you know, the machinations of narrative making and the yeah. tricks yeah. they will get up to and and perhaps to to do our own version or at least
2: well, call it you out know... when we see it. Again, this is self-serving. This you know way I think about this, but they have to do that. They have to do intense marketing and PR and all, and, and construct all these uh, sort of narrative apparatuses to make their case. Because what they're mm-hmm. selling you is a perversion of truth. It's right, you know, the truth with caked-on makeup and you know push-up bra and ass-flattering pants and all this stuff. And it, the moment they sort of let the, the their foot off the pedal in terms of this marketing push you see the thing underneath it and you realize that this huge distance between what's being sold to you and what you know truth is yeah. what the world actually looks like our advantage is okay again as i see it our advantage is, is that we're just delivering a sort of unadulterated exactly. truth it's it's just stark naked world up in front of you so when people see it there's this immediate recognition that what they're looking at is true. It passes the test of verisimilitude. They don't need to be sold on that fact.
3: Exactly. Which
1: is why the lines stretch around the corner. Yeah. Which is yeah. why you have people who are like part of the <clears throat> avant garde, the like New York City Seensters, LA Seensters why they want to hang out with, like, internet anons. Like, this was not a thing 10 years ago. Yeah, Like, hot women were not like, oh, I want to hang out with that uh, guy who writes weird stories. <laughs> like, no, that wasn't. But, like, yeah. now it it is just because, you know, the culture yeah. is so moribund. And, like, you know, we, by virtue of their kind of abandoning any, you know, semblance of, you know, free speech, it yeah. leaves that ground to us. Yeah. And, you know, the, I'm sure there is a sort of, uh, you know, a debate to be had in the future about how much free speech is good, how, you know, like, obviously, if you have uh, your own cultural message, and I think we do, um, right. you know, there's, you know, it's important to kind of like, uh, promulgate that. Yeah. That being said, you know, as long as we have the, where are the free speech people, and that yeah. that's a tremendous power, so yeah well run I mean that's what the left had that's what the yeah. left had yeah. in the 20th exactly. century yeah and that's why they drew all these cool weirdos right, right. defined the culture because they're like well we're the guys who let you say what you want to say yeah. and like you want to you know, shoot your wife at a party. That's cool. <laughs> like, well, the, yeah. you know, or if not cool, like, we'll look the other way. We'll still and you'll publish be your yeah, If you're we'll be, making a legend, writing good novels. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, to an extent, I think where are those guys yeah. now. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, not those guys, right? I don't think any no, of us I, are I I you're committing saying. felonies <laughs> in the near future. But, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah.
2: It's, um, I mean, when the when we win and we we uh, you know ascend to based world, I'm gonna be put up against the wall by my you know by our compatriots <laughs> for being a free speech absolutist, and that's fine. That's <laughs> that's the one I'm willing to go down on. Um. So yeah, I mean, that's you know, sort of that's the tradition that that I'm maybe coming from, even before anything else. And it, again, it gets back to this thing I was talking about earlier, which is like identifying not just truth, but truth that we don't know yet, things that that are yet to be, and how do we discover those things? And it's only through a kind of robust and open conversation amongst, you know, uh, smart, allowing people with with smart and dynamic ideas to exchange ideas without fear of censorship is the only way to sort of really discover truth. That's kind of my frontline sort of belief. Um, again, I know I'm going to be put against the wall for that at some point. No, future, um, and that's yeah. fine. But um, important, you know. And this is this is the huge gap between current leftists and uh, like boomer leftists. Um, you know, yeah. I remember in school, like the height of American sort of supremacy. This sort of apex of what it was to be American was like the ACLU defending you know, the Nazis at the Skokie, Plan Illinois, War, yeah. you know, and this, and, and more so it was like, you know, a Jewish lawyer who was like behind this defending the free speech of these Nazis. And this was a point of tremendous pride among yeah. like when you talk to like boomer lefties and, and boomer liberals, they, they point to that episode. And then you see now what's happening. Yeah. Like, look at the Douglas Massey thing. Our yeah. uh, Mackie thing, the, mm-hmm. the Ricky Vaughn yes. thing. You know, yeah. this guy goes to jail for posting a meme. It's totally insane. And not only that, you have the ACLU rooting it on. Okay. Yeah. And there's and or like the ADL, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt at the ADL trying to get Tucker off the air and yeah. you know, put people in jail for, you know, and, and um try to uh make the case for hate crime hate crimes and all this kind of stuff. I just it's it's uh totally anathema to to liberalism of the previous century now what i think is becoming sort of more clear to me as i get older is that liberalism was always going to have go this direction and that sort of golden period uh where where you know the oatmeal was just the right temperature at you know the goldilocks temperature could only last for so long and then inevitably entropy kicks in and the thing cools off and it becomes this sort of degraded mush that nobody wants. Um, and so maybe, maybe it was always going to be that way. But, uh, you know, that at least as a as a virtue, as something to aspire toward, even if it's not, even if we can't recapture it totally, that idea that we're going to let dynamic people say what the hell they want yeah. and make what kinds of art they want. Yeah, is it
3: kind of worked for, you know, 40 yeah. years or so. Uh, yeah. You know, and other people, I guess, would spit back, like, kind of as you joked about getting put up against the law, like, eventually, right wing yeah. people will also come down on you. Yeah. Perhaps there's definitely right wing <laughs> authoritarians, there's definitely right wing authoritarians I don't care for. But I do think, you know, there's some, I do think, overall, a sort of rightward take is, at the end of the day, more amenable to a more sustainable vision of some kind of free speech or some kind of relative kind of free speech, Um and I'm not a political theorist here to define that. But, you know, you it's not always as simple as people think. We can put it that way. You know, Hans-Hermann Hoppe. Yeah. I haven't read extensively. I won't pretend I have. But but it, then by way of Jarvin, you know, that uh, a strong leader is actually the best person to um, preserve and defend freedoms. Yeah. And I believe that And I think and I'm not a libertarian, but I think that there is a, a especially in america perhaps there is that thread of rightward libertarianism and if you have just the right amount of libertarianism in with your based right wing take yeah. Um, I, yeah i think that is kind of the good the good society in my opinion yeah. and, and, and one that's crucially not only good but in line with nature you know yeah yep
1: and because it's in line with nature that is kind of the um the place where Free speech, the the free speech that we want, the free speech that is actually like good art, uh, that's the type of speech that you know, you know, a right wing regime would protect. Yeah. Because like it is like uh, the you know, I think one thing that binds all of this literature, as you discuss, is its level of commitment to a certain uh, cultural, philosophical, and biological honesty. Yes. And that means that like well i think regardless of you know the kind of political motivations of the regime that's in power if it's a right-wing regime they're going to you know favor fiction that is more um you know uh, honest in in that regard so like will like you know i'm just imagining will like if we're under the uh The controller that, you know, Yarvin imagines, the right-wing, you know, CEO who, Uh you know, runs America. How will he feel about Nutcranker? I don't know. (laughs) Like, you know, will he feel it's like too obscene, too this or that? But one thing I know that he won't feel is that it's like dishonest Uh or it's, you know, so, you know, I, I think... I, And I think you know there's probably something to be said for you know if you're you want to have a healthy culture, there should be some level of um, you know, well, there are certain standards that art should meet yeah, I mean I, I think there's without a being yeah, yeah to kind of like and that you know i I'm gonna always push against that, but I'm not going to pretend that that's not relevant. I think right. you know there <laughs> there is a certain relevancy there. But I mean, that being said, I think there's just a long winded way of saying that I think a right wing regime is more in tune with producing art that is, you know, frankly good than a left wing regime, because a left wing regime is predicated on
3: lies about human nature.
2: Yeah, correct. That's my view as well.
3: And I was going to say, you can have high, exacting, demanding standards for your literature and other culture. Um, I I think these people are far from the most based people in recent uh, decades, but um, the two blue unrelated blooms, Harold Bloom and Alan Bloom, Mm -hmm. you know, during that kind of culture wars one, or, you know, a certain chapter of the culture wars in the late eighties, early nineties, and they were very pro the canon and maintaining sort of more rigorous standards. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of that, but there's quite a big, Difference between saying, like, you no, know, this is what's going to be taught in college. This is what good art is. Uh, that other stuff is in X, Y, and Z ways degenerate. There's a big difference yeah. between having those standards and um, jailing people for making memes or, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, actually having, a, you know.
2: The mistake that's often made in uh, it's not just in this context, but others as well. It's like we have a kind of aspirational goal. Uh, We have an aspirational set of aesthetic standards that we want to see in literature. And um, it's very difficult for any one person, even, you know, Harold Bloom famously would read like two, three books a day and, you know, was as rigorous as any uh, sort of literary scholar, at least of the last, you know, half century, Um, even for someone like that, you know, uh, his standards are going to be a kind of leak out at the edges and why this and not this other thing. And there's some level of uncertainty there. Um, and the kind of leftist turn then is to say, well, because we can't do that, let's just throw away standards altogether. Right. Okay? And they do this. You see this as well in journalism. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but they're uh, Rosen, maybe a uh, guy at Columbia Journalism uh he he's a professor there heads the department and that's a big deal columbia journalism is sort of the uh you know premier yeah. uh, grad school for journalism and his idea was uh that there's this illusion of objectivity and because journalists and newscasters for example can't be objective ever in their reporting you know they have their private beliefs and those private beliefs are going to color the way that they present news they therefore ought to completely eschew the entire idea of objectivity, even as an aspirational goal of journalism. And so this led to then a bunch of journalists over the last decade or so saying, well, fuck it. I'm a lefty, and therefore I'm going to ignore anything that mm-hmm. might have a sort of right wing valence or help be persuadable to sort of right-wing preferences. And I'm only going to cover things that are flattering to my left-wing sensibilities. And I'm just going to be a political activist because after all I can never truly achieve objectivity. So why even bother? And I think this happens with aesthetic standards too, rather than aspire toward a set of standards. Um, because it's impossible to ever get to that final step, you know, there's this limit on how close you can get. The mistake then is to just throw it all away and start at zero. And everything is entirely an uh, in individual subjective matter. And that's where a lot of these, not just standards, um, but the, the entire concept of standards, the in- entire concept yeah. of having, you know, true in non relativistic aesthetic hierarchies, just completely falls apart. It's not only easier for these people who are critics, it also has the added benefit of playing into their sort of political and ideological worldview. And so that's uh, largely what we've seen over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's
3: interesting. Um, another thing I wanted to kind of remember, we've talked about it a little bit, um, but but I want to bring it more explicitly is is something you, you touch on in your first things article about the longhouse, um the kind of the significance of men and boys uh mm-hmm. sort of dropping out, you know, the lower rates of higher education, not getting the jobs. Um Peachy's book kind of highlights something similar. It's it's part and parcel of yeah. the, the broader longhouse idea of the feminization. Uh, of things in the future being female in a, in a, in a not necessarily a great way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, a, am kind of interested. I'm interested in what the significance of that is to people like us. You know, I, I view like a lot of the potential audience of a podcast like new right um, or, 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 you know, readers of, of passage publications are, I think obviously heavily male skewing, but even in terms of like younger people who may find us, I mean, I think there's a real sort of opportunity um, for you know. I think, yeah, you know, yeah, I can understand why why young men aren't going to college for 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 any number of reasons in terms of you know it's a, it's a bad investment perhaps and like yeah, well the things are going to be taught there, but like so I don't and I do, I don't want to like oversell our corner of the internet, but it could almost yeah. be like an alternative. I mean, do you view it that way? I guess I'll put it that way you, as a, almost like an alternative way. of You're not know, get an English degree, but you can yeah learn everything about Western literature through this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, I have friends whose kids are like college age and I field questions like this a lot. Like what, uh, what do you think, you know, I should do with my kids? Should I send them to school? And if so, where, and all this kind of stuff, actually, I don't have really good answers for that because
3: it's hard. It's, I think, I
2: think there are, you know, in in individual cases, there are practical concerns that supersede like larger moral or sort of ideological concerns. And sometimes we just got to you know, yeah, eat, no, like rule that we're fed and, uh, you know, exactly. to like I wouldn't, to the next day. Um,
3: for, for, go, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, you know, so yeah, maybe, maybe there's some, you know, even relatively short-term near-term future where our scene, our space can provide viable alternatives um, for young men sort of seeking, uh you know, higher education or they are intellectually minded and want to get into the arts or philosophy and et cetera. And I hope I hope that's the case at some point. Um, But just to return to uh, sort of the broader question about the longhouse. Um, You know, okay. so the. The argument there stems from just this intuitive sense that there's something wrong, there's something broken about the society we're in. And I think most people have a similar kind of intuition we used the metaphor earlier that there's this kind of smell. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but so beyond that, what, what might be wrong with what's going on? And, um, this idea of the longhouse um, initially comes from BAP. So I did not invent yes. this metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, th- there's a whole sort of section of BAP book, um, where the longhouse is a jumping off point. And, first things had asked me to write something on them. And I happened to be flipping through BAPS book and BAPS book just has a way of kind of getting in your head. It, yes. you know, at least it does for me. And so this idea, this Longhouse idea really, for whatever reason, I was, I was sitting there one day, I thought, Oh man, this is maybe a key that can unlock some of this stuff. And so I just started riffing on BAPS notion of the Longhouse, And, um, One reason why I think it resonates and why there's value in this framework is because of a lot of the things we've we've previously discussed here, but namely it highlights a core natural and biological distinction between people. And that's the difference between men and women. And as the left attempts in our sort of culture at large... The regime at large attempts to elide all differences and sort of flatten completely the field of human nature. There's this one thing that is sort of most salient and most easy to understand um, about human difference, and that's the difference between men and women. And so, what the longhouse metaphor helps us do is identify this starting place that there are these differences the most salient of these differences is the difference between men and women. And here with this metaphor of the longhouse and the feminization of our society, we can see what the implications are of trying to ignore these differences. And in fact, by um, ignoring them, you overemphasize uh, the role and particular constitution proclivities of women over men and there are all sorts of consequences that, that, that then stem from that. So yeah. the Longhouse metaphor, again, it, it forces this confrontation with difference, with human biological difference. It draws out implications of those differences and thereby forces us to confront, again, reality, nature as it is, rather than how we prefer it ought to be. And so beyond anything else, you know, the crisis of masculinity and these questions around like what to do, uh, given the circumstances we're under or how this sort of long sort of manifests in a variety of different contexts. It's more just uh, forcing a confrontation with these sort of tricky and baseline issues that, again, I think ultimately lead toward sort of right wing conclusions.
1: One of the confrontations that the Longhouse ultimately faced was the confrontation with the Yamnaya. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I think that, you know, in some respects, what we're describing here, we're describing a moribund feminized culture. Yep. And I, you know, I think what we're trying to create is a more of a sky god culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. More of a, you know, a free kind of uh piratical almost culture both from a business perspective from an artistic perspective what have you and i think it um you know maybe is not too much to hope that when uh the yamnaya crash against the uh the longhouse uh denizens the early european farmers of today Mm -hmm. you know maybe it'll turn out the same way uh yeah. not uh not in real
3: life, but online. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um just kind of that broader longhouse phenomenon. I think you, we talked earlier about how you know Peachy Keenan is, you know, sort of a member of this space, but also mm-hmm. a bridge to a more normie conservative audience, as we see with her book selling. But one thing we talked about her when she was on this podcast last week is like how um the vision in Domestic extremists she presents of, she doesn't, she, I think she briefly calls it the longhouse. It's not the main word she uses, but she delves very much into that mm-hmm. feminization of society and its ill effects um, in a way that I think is really compelling. And she, even though it is kind of almost a more Norman conservative book in some ways, she cites BAP, she cites Camille yeah. Paglia. She's very yeah. grounded and, you know, based, yeah, literally, beautifully. Yeah, yeah in that sense. Um, Another thing we talked with her about, and another thing actually that you write about in your First Things article, I think you may have even brought it up earlier in this conversation is how uh, there are kind of, you know, this, well, A, as I mentioned, like there is this this space created, young men are are very much in need of an influence to navigate this, young women too, uh, but especially young men are very, very alienated. Um, And within that there's, you know, room for a Pied Piper, Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, some of the Pied Pipers we've had, like Andrew Tate, you know, deliver a very shallow Mm -hmm. and ultimately destructive idea of that. Um, And this kind of brings it back to the broader conversation about, you know, what's what's hopeful about the future? Can there be a new um, monoculture? Like, what's the future of this fight? And one thing we talked about with Peachy and that I'd like to bring up with you now, too, is like, is there room for someone who's like andrew tate but not you know may, maybe it's Bat, maybe it's maybe it's Bat, but like somehow with, with the appeal of, with the broader appeal of someone like pewdiepie like the, a hybrid of those two you know um do you see that as a potential <laughs> like for for these and maybe it's a dangerous idea but
2: no like, you know, i mean the, uh I an mean, I mean, influencer
3: basically who can yeah relate, i mean
2: basically. um you know the person Who uh, that would be, who has the proper combination of charisma, um, intelligence, a kind of uh, knack for narrative and a way of sort of grabbing these young men and directing them in a positive way. But who isn't, you know, overly um, sort of tempted or uh, seduced by a kind of hedonism, you know, that we see with like Andrew Tate um maybe more sober more grounded may have even their own in their own personal lives constructed a kind of model for these young men to emulate so that it doesn't need to be uh sort of uh constantly articulated but but Mm -hmm. can just um instruction through example um i I mean what we're talking about here is like the leader okay we're you know who's the king (laughs) you know and uh and, and who is this person that comes along with all of these qualities and can kind of just sort of wipe away all the all the baggage and bullshit that comes with, you know, the uh, the fakers and the pretenders to the throne and actually does the thing, which is lead these men out of this darkness and through the wilderness. Um, yeah, I mean, can this person exist? I certainly hope so. You know, I'll sit around and like pray for his uh uh, for his coming. I, who and what that is, and the precise kind of like theological dimension that it takes, I really am agnostic about. I have no idea what that might yeah. look like. Um, I I wonder if it's even sort of uh, in some way a kind of folly to to imagine this person coming, that there's there's it's a kind of utopianist instinct to hope for like this leader. And maybe, we just but yeah, yeah but, but maybe instead there's just a kind of um constellation of different guys who take on different versions of this. Mm. And I think so any any young men sort of feeds from whatever trough they're they're most in need of. Um, and it's something like that, you know, so I mean,
3: yeah, I, I think even if you had someone who is like Andrew Tate, because the, the white pill about Tate, if there's any, and Peachy talks about this is how he really was, pop- you know, very, very popular, very young men, it's actually yeah. horrifying, obviously, from a <laughs> feminist are horrified by that. But even me, you know, it's not, he's not yeah. a great guy. And I, you know, I, I know, I, I have like, I don't, you know, I get personal, like relatives, you know, yeah, and it's like, you know, all of a sudden, like, 14, year old boys just know who this guy is. If there was something like that, I, I agree, I have a kind of similar theological vision, like, you know, it would be great to have the leader, yeah. the man to lead the men through the wilderness. But even if it was just someone like Andrew Tate, an imperfect, you know, it, not as imperfect as Andrew Tate, but an imperfect person who just led people, led young men in a slightly better direction. It was an Andrew Tate who... You know, wasn't wasn't a rapist, but like maybe he (laughs) he he lightly suggested people read BAP, and that that might be you know he could be a conglomeration of people like that, just a pipeline. And because there isn't there is a white pill in that you know it's 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 responsible for so much bad stuff in the culture, but the 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 power of the influencer is kind of an intriguing moment because you can go off they can go off script. I'm talking about this with PG. They can go off script and they can you know, it, it, they're a little bit, I mean, obviously there's attempts, there's tech censorship, there's attempts to rein them in, but at the end of the day, anyone can, you know, become an influencer just with a computer or a phone and they can kind of go off script at any time.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, I certainly, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through this as you, as you talk and I'm thinking about, uh, even like, uh, you know, I don't know much about the influencer world, so this is going to sound like boomer and cringe, probably. But I'm um, <laughs> thinking about uh, like the Paul brothers. You know, they're like yeah, these yeah. fighters, and they have a certain kind of like vitality and thumos yeah. to them. You know, um, my concern though is with anything like this, and though being an influencer, so so you know, these are YouTubers or like TikTokers or whatever. Um, they do and can go off script all the time, and that's what makes them kind of exciting and maybe even a little dangerous they are still subject to the algo and their popularity is subject to the algo. And anybody who finds themselves in a role like that, whether it's Andrew Tate or whoever it's going to be, it's not that the algo is going to like silence them. I I don't actually don't really think it's that quite top down. What instead might happen is that algo is going to create a certain set of incentive structures that will push them away from what is good and what mm. we, what might be healthy and more sort of sober, I guess, kind of uh, a guidance and direction towards the more sort of hedonistic and, uh, you know, Epicurean or whatever term you want to use, you know, that's, it, it's a little bit more nihilistic. It's a little bit more concerned with, you uh, you know, a lot of these same things that, you know, uh, you know, shitlib influencers might be concerned. With. It's sort of like rapper culture kind of stuff. And so that's what the algo wants. That's what the algo is going to get. And uh, I, and so I wonder about um, sort of the long-term viability of someone like that, or whether there's just a hard ceiling on how popular anyone can really get presenting a more kind of, uh, mm-hmm. muscular right-wing vision.
1: To yeah, what I extent mean? do we think doxing is a concern here? So uh, to bring it back to the original, some of the stuff we were initially talking about at the beginning of the episode, before the pod, I think for a kind of like someone with the message and charisma of BAP, uh, but you know, also who, who can dox, Mm -hmm. can be like this is me in the real world i'm a guy i'm like that is like something that's a very difficult thing to navigate because like yes the people who do docs like andrew tate like well like he's you know we all know the problems that are inherent with someone like him yeah and even like someone like logan paul or whatever yeah they're like you know they're not substantial People really—they're, yeah. you know—they're in, the they're influencers, personalities. Like, what you really need is like someone who is like, "Look at me! I went to the best schools. Eyes, you know, I, I'm very, you know, well-read. I'm very capable. I could be a, you know, a man of the regime or whatever, yeah. but I have uh, decided not to be because yeah. that was wrong." And this is my message. And I'm actually like, you know, I'm not a a grifter. I'm not a, you know, weird. Oh, and that's very hard to find because you essentially have to find a guy who's willing to like, you know, basically burn it all down. Yes. And, and, and that by that very action, he becomes a sort of like freak, like, you know, like like most normal people would not be like, yeah, I don't really want to have a future. I'm just going to be online instructing guys how to be yeah. normal. And I myself am not normal because I've destroyed my life. Yeah, It's yeah. just this in, an inherent you know, problem.
2: <laughs> inviting, inviting scrutiny on your family and yeah. your wife and your kids. <laughs> and it becomes like a lifelong burden that you have to uh, take on. I mean, the truth is like uh, one, one fascinating thing about going offline to some extent and like meeting people in real life is that a lot of the Anons that I'm meeting sort of in some way fit that description, you know, these are like <laughs> well put together people. They got families. They, you know, uh, in some sense, like are the tip of the, you know, cathedral spear, you know, they're, they're yeah. in places of significant, to a greater and lesser degree, like authority, you know, maybe they're yeah. professors or they're in finance or even, you know, work for the government, even. Um, and so these people are out there. I would say the one one interesting thing is that that at least for this current iteration of people, they found their liberation through being anon. Mm. And there's something About being a non that is inextricable from the rest of their identity, such that if they were to become like you know, face accounts, uh it would it would demystify or rob them of some essential quality, uh or or, you know, or maybe that's just the the fear, you know, that people have, and it's why it doesn't happen more often. But I think this is going to start to happen. So, you know, like Oren McIntyre has kind yeah. of done this a little bit. He's sort of like making this small transition. And, uh, you know, Curtis Yarvin did this, okay? Menchus Moldbug yeah. sort of transitioned yeah. to being from a uh, Nanon to a real person. Peachy, okay? Peachy's yeah. Just did it Last yeah. week, I can't like not see her face everywhere I go. Um, You know, and so, and so, okay, I have a lot of complicated feelings about this and what the value of that is. And I've thought about this for myself too, but I wonder if what you're describing here is just going to be a natural state of thing. There are going to be these guys who are online, you know, who are Anons who are going to take on that role that you just described, Dan, and when and how that process happens and how that migration from a purely online identity to someone who's there in front of a camera sort of presenting the model for what, Oh, you know, what a man might be like within this sort of present set of circumstances is inevitable. And we're, you know, yeah, not a a long way from that happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really think so. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, so many of us are, like, increasingly not very anon anymore anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, right, right. Like, uh, it's a tricky thing, though. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's bas- one, one of the, uh, maybe you kind of just articulated this, but one of the one of the major factors, I think, is doing events like what we did on yeah. May 18th here in L.A. And, 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 like, the Passage event in New York. Obviously, there was also just a Delicious Tacos reading in New York. These in-person events are getting more and more common, and the question of how yeah. you made remain anonymous at them you know because uh, thankfully this i don't think has really happened yet but anyone could go there with a the camera maliciously yeah. or not and then all of a sudden there's your face online and if it's yeah. if it's online one place it can be replicated um yeah so it's it's so, a tricky yeah, I, thing to navigate yeah I,
2: actually i, I want to say something which is that um while i think we're headed in in a good direction we are not at the point where anybody who's young should be and sort of uncertain about their situation and future should be doxing themselves unnecessarily yeah. if they are going to be wanting to say what's on their mind, like online. I mean, if you have the proper constitution to do that, whatever, you know? Um, but I I think uh, that it's important for people to understand that there are still risks Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that having the wrong set of beliefs and articulating them in a way that's, you know, doesn't fit this very narrow set of vocabulary that the that the cathedral has carved out for us can really fuck up your future. Yeah. And so I don't you know, when it comes to our events, for example, and BAP has talked about this, BAP tweeted something about this, like, you know, I think he said, be careful about feds or you know there may be feds and I think that's probably true. And yeah. so um, I, I think people should be, you know, you got to make decisions for yourself and uh, if you're if you're established or there's a part of yourself that wants to be involved in this and you know you have strategies for keeping yourself sane and protecting your personal interests and your family, then um, so be it. But short of that, there's very good reason to be cautious and very little reason to be sort of flamboyantly doxing yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and there,
3: it doesn't have to be flamboyant is one thing. Sometimes in the mm-hmm. a non versus not debate, um, the substantial middle ground gets kind of covered over. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can show face sparingly. You mm-hmm. can do things in person without putting your picture online. You yep. can be fairly open with your face without um, using your real name there's a lot of there's a lot of milk. And it also depends totally on what the kinds of things you want to say. Because as we discussed earlier, not everyone is saying overtly political stuff. Now, someone yeah. like Delicious Tacos has to be careful because his writing is controversial for reasons that are not explicitly to do with a political ideology. You know, we're all here in reaction to something, in re- reaction to to the cathedral, and therefore there's always going to be risk. But people yeah. have different degrees of risk. You shouldn't necessarily be, you know, citing. things that are really you know i think you guys get my meaning yeah but at the same time don't
2: underestimate their ability to malign you through um you know mere guilt by association yeah oh of course and and so merely being in the same room as someone who has said something bad in the past is equivalent to you having said it and i mean we have like examples of this even in uh trump's President, you know, Darren Beatty got kicked mm. out of Trump's cabinet because he went to a conference at the H.L. Mencken Club. OK, mm. there are people yeah. in real life who, if you, you know, search their name or something. There are there's articles talking about how they're quote unquote white supremacists and this and that and you know whatever terms are used just to sort of automatically discredit you and disqualify you and prevent an employer from ever wanting to hire you not even because you might believe those things or have ever said anything close to approximating those beliefs but because it's more hassle for the employer than it's worth and I mean yeah, just yeah don't put yourself in that position um, and and just going to an event you know, to to, like, look, go to the event, just be incognito. You're just some guy there. And maybe you have an account with a few thousand followers or whatever. And there might be some temptation to kind of like whisper, Hey, I'm this guy or that guy, but you know, try to try to have some discipline. Just if you want to be at these events, be at the events. Now, if you find like-minded people and you trust them, and then that comes to a point where you can share these things, fine. So be it, I'm not saying like be paranoid or walk around, like we're in a you know, uh, you know, there's Stasi walking around or something, but just, just have some discretion, you know, that's all.
1: Yeah. One thing I would advise on the flip side of that is young people who are choosing their careers, choose a career where there is an option down the road for yeah. you to become an entrepreneur, a yes. small business owner, independent, even a large business owner, And then you will find that your freedom is, if not complete, close to complete. I mean, like, you know, I suppose the government could shut down my bank account. But other than that, like, I'm pretty good. So, like, if you, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer or doctor or whatever, you know you can pursue a trade you can pursue yeah. just as long as you build a business and have clients i guarantee you you know if you're an electrician your you know your clients or your you know are not going to care about your political beliefs that won't even come up yeah it's just you know you just yep. get into a position where you do not have to sit through uh di seminars where you do not have to worry about like you know if you're calling people the right pronouns and then like suddenly you know you've kind of scored a big w over yep. so many different aspects of your life because like you're n- you're kind of not even in the longhouse anymore yeah you're uh, you're wandering around
2: yeah i wish 10 years ago instead of uh let's just say joining the cathedral I would have just moved to like a small town and bought like a, a a local gym, you know, and that like, that would have been my life Uh, and could be my life now. And I'd be doing fine and could make whatever decisions I'd want to make. And perhaps I'd be doing precisely the same thing I am now, but with a level of security that I don't currently enjoy, you know? And so uh, I, I totally agree with that message. On the other hand, if you're a daring sort, you know, and you have some uh, interesting ideas and want to try to go infiltrate the cathedral and sort of work the system from the inside out, or think that there may be some long, long, long con, you know, long-term benefit to getting in there um, and making those connections, you know, maybe there's a, there's a place for that too.
1: True. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
2: But just know yourself, you know, know know what you want and uh, what matters to you. Very far if, from yeah. a one-size-fits-all. If, yeah. if stability is the key, if you want a little bit of money, if you want exit from the longhouse, and uh, to sort of be the master of your own destiny in a sense, um, yeah, small business ownership is uh, the best thing you could possibly do.
1: Yeah, 100%. And if you're like the type of guy, and I think we, we both know them, we all know them, who is just, like, in his mid or early 20s and is just kind of, like, um, has this kind of, like, charisma, passion or whatever, and you just don't care and you want to dox or whatever and you want to, like, run around and do your thing, like, you know, you probably were the type of guy who's gonna, you know, get, you know, cut down in battle, anyways. So, you know, do do your thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
3: Well, before we wrap, definitely wanted to ask about kind of what's what's next for Passage Press. Um, oh yes, I was yeah. I was kind of looking. I have the compendium right in front of me, just by coincidence, and I see them um, kind of on your back shelf there, Lomez. And I'm just yeah. thinking, like, uh, not to blow too much smoke up your ass, but like, uh, man, these books are really beautiful. Like, there's something they're beautiful, and there there's something luminous about them. Uh, I don't know if that's a that's, silly word. Um, but the, this one and also Curtis's book, they're they're better made, yeah, than than regular books. Thanks for saying and I think that. that's yeah. part of it. And yeah. I think that is a genius move yeah. because I think that a lot of other sort of self-publishing uh, self you know people who self-published their books and smaller presses, uh, and I'm not knocking anyone because these are presses that I've published with that Dan's published with it. yeah, you know we'll we publish our books with this. you know, it, they look like they were made on Amazon, which is fine. Yep. Uh, but it's like it's almost like they're they're kind yeah. of a real book but not quite but then to do the opposite and to make something that looks better than a real book is this I think genius aesthetic move of uh, uh it's like a we're winning moment because yeah. it, it, it's a step ahead it, it it's it, it the aesthetic mirrors the content because it's like this is more real and more honest mm-hmm. than what you're getting from the culture industry so I just wanted to pay that compliment to to passage and um thank you yeah, I know I've heard some absolutely. things obviously helping plan the event last month in LA with passage. I I may, I'm not sure how much of this is public knowledge, but I've heard some of the plans for upcoming books and they are elaborate. They will be further in this direction of very beautiful
2: books. So I'm happy to elaborate on some of that first. Thank you for uh, saying those things about the quality of the book. That's very important to me personally and to my partners. And, uh, it's a, I just like, nice things. I want to surround myself with nice things. I want to be in beautiful places surrounded by beautiful art. And so having good looking books is just important to me. Okay. And I think other people to other people too, I think surrounding yourself by nice things, beautiful things, um, even at some cost, like that's what you should have your money for, by the way, but uh, even at some cost will make your life better. Okay. Surround yourself with nice things. Do not surround yourself with shit. Um, Get out of the pod, live in nice places and surround yourself with nice things. So that's one I want it. That's very important to me. Um, It has a cost. Okay. It it makes things go a little slower on our end. So like the rollout of our books just takes longer because there's all sorts of other sort of uh, considerations that we need to make around design, um, which is fine. It just means we're moving at a bit of a slower pace. Uh, So next up on our uh, slate for publication is Steve Saylor's Mm -hmm. anthology. Yeah, Um, This is going to be, it started out as one volume, but in our back and forth with Steve, he's got so much good stuff that uh, it's going to fit into two volumes. Um, And so the idea of this is, There's a lot of guys who have been following Steve for a long time. Um, I'm among them. Like I've been reading Steve since the early Mm two thousands, but a lot of people have just come in contact with him over the last few years or even early, you know, more recently than that. And, uh, or there's like, Oh, I got a friend who's kind of like right on the edge of things, but he's not quite sure. You know, what do I give him? How do I like introduce him to some of the ideas present in our world? And uh, so this, the idea of this book is to be a kind of Steve Saylor primer um, Mm -hmm. to get people on board and to just sort of um, consolidate his massive corpus of work into something that's digestible. So uh, that's going to be, we're just finishing the final um, bits on the manuscript. That's going to be released in a high end uh, cloth bound edition edition in um probably september awesome and uh we're gonna do some events around that as well people who buy that book are gonna have access to some private events with steve and then there's gonna be a standard sort of trade rollout that comes uh in q1 of 2024 um we have our second passage book um i just received the first galley proofs of that uh today those look great. It's just one last phase of edits. We're going to get the preprint started on that. The pre-sale started on that um, very soon here. We're going to do similar to last time. There's going to be a high-end edition. Um, we're doing a kind of framed. Uh, it's it's called like a card cut um, insert on like a cloth bound hardcover with uh, gilded stamped lettering and stuff. It's going to look nice. really nice. Nice. Um, So that also is going to be sort of premium version of the passage that's going to be associated with a live event where the purchase of that book is going to come with a kind of token that uh, grants you access to a private event that we're going to have. We're going to invite winners to do readings and just have like, you know, a place for people to hang out. Um, So that's going to be a limited print run. And then we'll do a second print run um, after that's complete. We have a uh, Nick Land book. Um, Heard coming about out. that. Yeah. So we're going to be, uh, yeah. as soon as I'm done with these sailor drafts in the next, you know, I, I the Nick Land book is going to be my July project. So I'm going to put together a draft of that, uh, hopefully get that approved by Mr. Land and then uh, get that started in print relatively soon. We're going to try to move pretty fast on that one. Great. Um, yeah. Amazing. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here. I got a couple of uh, fiction manuscripts that I'm nice. looking at um, from uh, some people who are like in our space, um, people who have submitted to Passage, um, someone who was at the uh, New York event last week. Um, okay. So I'm going to make a decision yeah. about <laughs> uh, I want to have at least one piece of new fiction in the catalog for next year. Um, we mentioned Delicious Tacos earlier. Tacos, uh, is like a year away from completing a new novel. So right. I don't want to make any kind of promises and put yeah. any kind of undue pressure on anyone, but we would love to get Tacos a novel. It's something we've talked about. So when, and if that's completed, um, zero HP Lovecraft has been working on a longer project that we'd love to participate in as well. Um, then, uh, what is there some other stuff too? that I'm blanking on at the moment, but, um, there's a lot, a lot of irons in the fire and, Oh, you mentioned that anthology previously, Dan. Yeah. So Woland is, we went out in, in our gathering just some more pieces to fill that out. Uh, Mike Anton wrote a piece for it. Oh, nice. I didn't yeah. realize uh, that. But yeah. Know. So, yeah. Uh, you know, people here and there, and we, I kind of want to, my goal before publishing it, I don't think it's in a rush, you know, and these things, like I said, yeah. my view of publishing is let's do it right and take our time. So if it yeah. takes an extra six yeah. months, so be it. Um, I want to get pieces from a variety of different spheres. And again, this like different perspectives. Now, these are all our guys. So there's not going to be like the Matt Iglesias kind of like <laughs> whatever. Yeah. whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I want to get something from Mike Anton. I want to get something from, uh, you know, Rye Nationalist has said he's going to write something for us. Um, you know, Zero um these different people in different spheres uh i dan you've written something I, for it i, did. I don't it, know it where it's decidedly you're at uh
1: non-horny i yeah. uh, <laughs> okay. do i i made wool to promise it would be not horny <laughs> <laughs> and so it. Yeah. uh but i think it's still good
2: nice nice and um <laughs> so i'm excited for that and uh, and and that'll be a fun book to put together oh yeah and then curtis's uh book so yeah, We have Unqualified Reservations, Volume 2. That's going to be my August project. Great. Um, but also, Curtis is working on Gray Mirror, which is yeah. not going to just be a um, a collection of, of entries from his new substack. He's working on all fresh material for a new book that's nice. tentatively titled Gray Mirror at the moment. And so, again, it's just a matter of timing. Um, not wanting to rush writers, giving people the time they need. And, you know, here's the other thing. Uh, everybody, all these other publishers in our sphere, everybody's doing the best they can with what limited resources they can. One thing that's missing from our sphere is editing. Okay. I just yeah. have to, yeah. I have to throw this. <laughs> yeah, <in. laughs> that's true. You <laughs> don't have editors. Okay. And, and And I can totally understand why. And this is not the fault of any writers or, or any publishers. It's just, it's a of all the resources you can bring to bear on a a book publishing project, it's the one that's easiest to discard if you are lacking resources. It's the thing that falls away and you leave it up to the individual writer to do their own editing. I think it's very important that we have a strong kind of editorial hand over our work, um, both because it demonstrates a level of professionalism that we want to project. It also is a way to um, help a writer sort of sharpen his own vision and focus. And sometimes writers are reluctant to do this. And I've been on the other side of that conversation where editors like, you need to do this, you need to do X, you need to do Y, Z. And I think, no, I'm not doing that. I refuse. And, you know, we, we brought up an anecdote earlier where a writer was asked to like add some new ending to a novel. That's not the kind of editing I'm really talking about. I'm, I'm really saying on the sentence level, And on that first draft phase, sitting down with someone else who you trust as a reader to give you constructive feedback and can help you just sort of cut through some of that fat. And so uh, that's part of what we're doing, too. And um, I really want these books and the material we put out. Not just to look good, but when anybody spends the money they're going to spend on a passage book they're going to feel good about it. And they know that they're going to get something that has been like heavily vetted and invested in. It's not just, Hey, we're doing this, try to make an extra few bucks. And uh, you know, this is just a guy we happen to like, you know, I I like my friends and I want my friends to flourish, but I found in the last six months, I need to say no to a lot of my friends. Like this isn't ready yet. This isn't what we're looking for, you know? And it's because I have a very, particular and strict vision about what do I want to accomplish with this? And maybe that's me being a too maybe a little too overbearing, but for yeah, now, I think it's, yeah, that's just the way it's gotta be.
1: I will say there are a lot of novels and and books that I buy from our sphere just because I want to support our guys. Yeah. I like, you know, I want to, I want to read what they're writing, but like unqualified reservations, the upcoming sailor compendium, yeah. Nick land, You know, the passage prize to like, this is all stuff that like I legitimately really want to buy. And I really want to have it on my bookshelf. And like it looks, you know, rather than looking worse than mainstream publishing books, it actually looks better, which is, you know, incredible so like yeah Yeah. it's really i mean that
2: means a lot and also is a testament to our guys because it's all our guys doing this stuff it's not like yeah i mean this isn't me you know this is me bringing people together but like the design the binding the you know selecting the right kind of paper um these like design and editorial and layout features this is sort of the collective talent of all these guys in our sphere so it's uh, it's really good to hear that, and it's proof of concept that there is real talent here, you know, and that absolutely we really sort of want to build out alternative infrastructure, alternative inst- institutions. It's possible. It's not just larping. Again, these are people who are highly competent, highly capable, have executive ability, um, and hopefully, I mean, the one missing thing still, to some extent, not altogether is like financial resources. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. enticing like the donor networks, such as they are, who are sympathetic to what we're doing, you know, to cut us some checks so we can get this stuff done. Yeah. And we've made a yeah. little headway on that, but it's going to require a little bit more buy-in and maybe, yeah. we, you know, my thing is we just keep making good stuff and that'll happen. But,
1: um, I mean like also the tie into these real world events, like, yeah, so, um, in my, you know, career, my experience, um, a- allowing people access to openings and mm-hmm. what have you, investors will invest sometimes substantially just to be in the room right just to be in the room where a cool thing happens and to have like the person who organized it be like and this guy made it happen and and you know and he did because he you know his money Mm -hmm. helped make it happen yeah and it's
2: not an insignificant part of this equation you know Yeah, they deserve (laughs) some credit and courage for you know putting some skin in the game and yeah it's easy for us to say oh they got a ton of money so what's another check for x amount but uh you know i don't i don't take that lightly like these are people who deserve part of this credit
1: as well absolutely sure. uh well i i guess that kind of does it for us here on our side are there uh, any uh further uh items you you want to hit on your side Lomas? yeah
2: no i mean this was super fun i really enjoyed it um it's really heartening too to see like what you guys are doing And see that there are these other nodes in this network and like that we're all kind of converging on the same space. And, you know, Matt, I I don't know if I mentioned this on the pod or just in our conversation when we first uh, got on the call. But, you know, Matt organizing that event in L.A. and us being able to come in and provide our own sort of piece of support for that is like how this should work. You know, it's all kind of corners bringing what they can to the table and us, you know, really like all boats rise with this tide. So it's important. One thing that can happen in these spaces is suddenly resources get scarce and there's this sort of petty fighting over the crumbs on the floor. And it's like, we cannot have that mindset. It's gotta be that we're all going to sort of uh, do this in, in some ways, like together. I mean, people working their different corners, but Um, and that, yeah, again, all boats are going to rise with this tide. It's a forest where, we're, we're sort of growing here, not just a single tree. Okay. To get back to the metaphor.
3: No, I think we're, we're doing that. I think the attitude toward these separate nodes is extremely, um, congenial and we're all working together, which is really cool. And, um, I mean, not even to speculate on the past, but something that has really been lacking a lot of the time in what you might call the dissident, right. Or the online, right. There there's, it's. Infamous for uh, infighting, but I think maybe I mean I think I think we have good people at the helm of, of these projects, and I think yeah. that helps a lot. And I think also just the nature of what we're doing—we're spreading culture, we're we're bringing uh, you know fantastic works of absolutely. art into the world. It's inherently—it's not all an egoic power grab to be that right. leader figure. It's something. There's a sense that we're all building something, and I think that's what what makes it flourish.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: WGMI. we're gonna make it
2: that's right
1: on that note i guess uh we will sign off passage press buy their books they are beautiful unqualified reservations looks tremendous on any coffee table it is you know also full of you know incredible writing curtis yarvin uh, steve sailor compendium coming up nick land book coming up frankly passage press is publishing the most interesting and best produced books today so you absolutely. You, know, you guys got to check man. them out that, that you means a buy lot stuff.
2: appreciate that all right fellas thanks a lot for having me on
3: sure thing absolutely, absolutely.